Well, I'm Rob. And I'm Nate. And welcome back to Rob and Nate Record a Podcast. Uh, we are in the month of May 2020, and our theme this month is films of the actor Billy Crystal, the comedian Billy Crystal. So we started with the 1991 City Slickers, which features Jack uh, Palance, who wins an a Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor mm-hmm. uh, for his role in this film. Which is kind of interesting. He's not in the film as long as you'd expect. No, I, I did a rough calculation. I would estimate he's in around a third of the film. Yeah. Billy Crystal, in his autobiography, writes a lot about how this came to be and kind of his interactions with Jack Palance. Um, this film and the subsequent City Slickers 2 takes up quite a bit of time in his autobiography. It's pretty interesting if, if you are interested in checking it out. I, I definitely would recommend it. I listened to it on an audiobook that I checked out from the library. Um, but I was I was listening to it at work, and I repeatedly would la- would laugh out loud because the autobiography is that funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a number of scenes in this film. I mean, I guess first let's dive into what were your first impressions of this film? Well, um, I my guesstimation is this is the second or third time I've seen it this century. Uh, the first time I saw it was, I think, in 1992. We ha- I want to say it was an HBO preview or something like that. Uh-huh. We had the basic cable, and we had a preview. And I remember watching it. And I guess I must have been around 12 when I saw it. And it's not like I hadn't seen movies before that were geared to a little older audience than me. This is this is a family-friendly movie for the most oh, yeah. part. Yeah. But I just really absolutely adored this movie when when I first saw it. It was just something fresh. It's a comedy, but it's also more than a comedy. It's got some wonderful character arcs. It's got some depth to it. Yeah. So it's a comedy plus. Yeah. Um, I really liked it. I've I've always been quite fond of this film. Uh, I own it on uh, DVD. It's back at the home place in, in Boise. Yeah. Uh, but it's just nice to revisit it. It's probably been the better part of 10 years since I've last seen it. and It's just a really enjoyable film. And it's a film I'd love to show my niece and nephews at some point. Yeah, that would definitely be a fun one. That's Like you said, you could do this for a family night for mm. you know just about anybody. Um, yeah, I, I, I've seen this film more recently than you have. But I don't remember exactly when. I want to say I've seen it probably in the last five or six years uh, once, you know but not with any regularity. I'm actually, I bought it for tonight and I'm actually glad I did because this is a film that would be easy to revisit. Yeah, it's very watchable. It, it's yeah. one that can bear uh, a lot of rewatching. Yeah. There's a lot of little tidbits in this film. Uh, a lot of kind of fun stuff as you, as you go along. We should probably discuss the basics about what the film's about. Yeah. Uh, the film opens up with Billy Crystal, whose character's name is... Mitch Robbins. Uh, it opens with Billy Crystal as Mitch Robbins, Daniel Stern as Phil Burquist, and Bruno Kirby as Ed uh, Ferrillo. Uh, and they are in Spain for the running of the Bulls. They're, chi- they're childhood friends yep. uh, that have stayed quite close, and they have uh, started a tradition of taking vacations together. And to go on various adventures. To go various adventures spurred on mostly by Ed, who is a sporting good, owns a sporting good chain yeah and is very much about keeping his youth uh they have a comment early on about how he has increased the older you get the younger your girlfriends get yeah and he's just kind of chasing chasing youth to paraphrase uh what uh mitch's wife barbara says 
And they go to the running of the bulls in Spain for a fun opening Where upon Mitch gets gored. Gets gored in the rear end. Yeah. Followed by an animated title sequence that I remember quite enjoying uh, when I was younger. Yeah. And then we go back to New York where they're from and we see the doldrums in which Mitch finds himself in life. Yep. And it progresses through the doldrums and the doldrums uh, are punctuated by... The 39th birthday. The troubles that Phil experiences at Mitch's 39th birthday party. Mm-hmm. And then after that, uh, Barbara tells Mitch that she wants him to accompany his friends on this trip to essentially a dude ranch. Yeah. To so, drive some cattle. So uh, so Phil and uh, Ed have purchased tickets for all three of them to go on their vacation to this functioning cattle ranch in New Mexico and Colorado and drive a herd up from New Mexico uh, to, to the Colorado. sister ranch in yeah. Colorado. They had previously planned, or Mitch previously planned, to go with his wife and two kids, one of which is played by his actual daughter, Yep. and one of which is played by a very young Jake Gyllenhaal. Which is Jake Gyllenhaal's first film debut. Oh, wow. His original film debut. And they're going to go down to Florida to visit her parents, uh, and Mitch is not a big fan. And he's just become so frustrated that his wife Barbara, uh, who is played by uh, Patricia Wedig. Uh, insists that he go with them. He was going to try to bow out. But he yeah. said, no, you need to go out there and you need to uh, rediscover your smile. Yep. And before all this happens, they have a sequence uh, earlier on his 39th birthday where he goes, first his boss, played by Jeffrey Tambor, kind of demotes him mm-hmm. because he works in a radio station selling advertising time and he bought a lot of advertising time for a very annoying commercial, yeah. which they're getting pushed back on. So he's like... You still do your job, but I have to prove every deal before before you do it. Yeah. And then he takes this news with him when he goes to career day at, at his, his son's, son's class. Yeah. And he gives a wonderful little depressing monologue about the trajectory of your life to these elementary school students. Yeah. And it just feeds into where he is in his life and what prompts his wife to insist that he, that go, he go out and try to find his smile and then that gets us to the story proper. This, it's a fairly long introduction. There's a, there's almost a sub movie there. Well, the, before they're, he gets they're to doing some plot development. A lot for of plot Ed and, and um, Ed and Phil. Yeah, they're doing some plot development for both of them so that they're ready when it comes along. Um, and Phil's has to do with a confrontation that happens at, at the birthday party yeah. at Mitch's 39th birthday party uh, when. One of his employees... And Phil is very whipped. Phil is very whipped, and he uh, is Works the for his mother, supermarket his manager for his father-in-law. Father, yeah. And one of the cashier, uh, cashiers shows up at Played Mitch's by, uh, birthday bar- uh, party. Played by young Yardley Smith yep. of Lisa Simpson fame. Yeah, and shows up and tells him that she's late for her period and that her pregnancy test has come back positive. And this leads to quite the confrontation between Phil and his wife in which it becomes very clear they're getting a divorce. Yeah. It also turns out to be a false alarm. We later find out that... Uh, well, we find out after they're at the not, ranch. Yeah, yeah, is not actually pregnant. Um, but, you know, so everyone has... Well, and then Ed, um, his wife wants to get pregnant. Ed's not sure he wants a child. His 24-year-old underwear model wife. Yeah. Uh, and so there's they're all out on this adventure to discover something about themselves. And they get to the ranch, and we are quickly introduced to... A really nice supporting cast. Yeah. Um, we meet a... Uh, we meet Ben and Jerry, or a version thereof, uh, Barry and Ira 
Sholowitz, played by Josh Mustel and David Pamer. We also meet Bonnie Rayburn, played by Helen Slater. Helen Slater of uh, Supergirl fame. Yeah. Uh, she was also in a movie called The Legend of Billie Jean, which if we ever do an 80, 80s month, it's a very 80s movie. Yeah. Uh, and then we meet Jeff and TR, played by Kyle Secor and Dean Hallow. Um, and that's kind of the main characters, well, besides Curly. Um, yeah, and then you've got the uh, the Jessups, played by Bill Henderson and Phil Lewis, who are uh, father and son dentists from Baltimore, who have gone uh, to the ranch. And also, well, Helen, Helen Slater's character. And, yeah, that's basically makes that up. Well, and then we, we're quickly introduced to Curly, who, as he, who's played by Jack Palance. Uh, who is correcting some of the other employees as they're harassing Bonnie? Yeah, the two the two main hands are handsy. Yeah, uh, with uh, with Helen Slater, uh, but uh, Curly's there to keep them in line. We can't. I mean, you can't not talk about this performance. This Jack is what Palance. people remember. Uh, yeah. He won the Oscar. Jack Palance uh, is a very interesting actor. Uh, I've got a story to share, which I think I actually sh- shared on a previous. Recording, but I think I'll share it again just because I like the story. And a little background on Jack Palance. So Jack Palance is Ukrainian-American. He started out on the stage, worked his way into film. He had two Oscar nominations very early in his career uh, in the early 1950s for a movie called Sudden Fear in 1952 and then for Shane in 1953. Uh, He, of course, is best known for westerns, though he worked in a lot of genres. And he worked a lot in Europe when he couldn't get the kind of parts he wanted uh, in the States. Uh, But the story that I like to share is about his uh, first film role, which is in a movie called Panic in the Streets by Ilya Kazan. Ilya Kazan is best known for pretty serious uh, pictures that had to do with some kind of issue, race relations, anti-Semitism, things like that. But he made this really good film called Panic in the Streets, which is a thriller uh, that came out in 1950, and it is about um, a case of the plague... Uh, is brought on shore to New Orleans, and Richard Widmark is like a CDC guy, and he needs to try to shut down this plague, make sure it doesn't spread. And they find out early on that two people that have come in contact with this are two criminals. One is Jack Palance, one is Zero Mustel. And they think that they're being hunted down for the crimes they've committed, but uh, uh, Richard Widmark doesn't really care about that. He just wants to keep the plague from spreading. Uh, from spreading and there's a scene in which uh, Jack Palance and Richard Widmark have a fight and Jack Palance is supposed to hit uh, Richard Widmark he got too excited he was too in the moment and he really slugged Richard Widmark to the point that he rendered him unconscious he was unconscious for a number of minutes and the story is that uh, Richard Widmark would always say it's like I work with a lot of actors a lot of tough actors difficult actors but there's only one actor who I'm really scared of, and that's Jack Palance. Yeah. Well, an interesting another note about Jack Palance, he uh, apparently never watched his films. Hmm. So Jack Palance never saw City Slickers until after he won the Oscar. Oh, really? Yeah. So He's probably like, oh, what did I do that was so good? I should yeah. study my own work. Yeah, but his uh, previous nomination uh, as best you know, for an Oscar was 1953. Yeah. So he, I mean, nearly 30, 40 years. Yeah. It had passed uh, 38 years between when he'd last been nominated and when he wins an Oscar. And so. everybody, I think was really happy that he won that. He yeah. deserved it. It was, a, it was a perfect part for him. It's hard to imagine anybody else in that part. Well, again, check out the, the, uh, 
Billy Crystal autobiography because he gives a lot of story about how Jack Palance came to be in this role and kind of his interactions with Jack Palance. And it's it's really quite entertaining. Mm-hmm. So, And then, of course, he famously did uh, sit-ups on the Oscar stage when he received the award. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. Well, and another thing that occurred when he won the award, when he received the award on stage, he made a, a comment to Billy Crystal, I take bigger craps than you, which is a line that he delivers in the movie, and people forgot that that was a line from the movie. And so they thought he was upset with Billy Crystal at the Oscar mm-hmm. ceremonies. So, but yeah, um, but it's a line from the movie. Um, but yeah, so we're introduced to Curly and, and the other characters, and pretty soon they head out on their adventure to drive the cattle. And uh, of course, everyone's terrified of Curly, um, not necessarily without reason. And there's some incidents that happen early in, uh, on their expedition. Um, Billy Crystal at one point uh, spurs a stampede, uh, so he and Curly go off on an adventure of their own. You and me alone. Yep. And uh, it's funny because Curly makes the comment. He says, "I'll catch up with you later." And Billy Crystal's like, "Don't you mean we?" You know, because <laughs> he's convinced Curly's going to kill him. Um, but there's some some fun funny things that happen on that little they, side they adventure. They end up really bonding. That's oh, yeah. kind of the emotional heart of the movie. Yeah, yeah. And then shortly after that, Curly actually passes away. So they're then being led by the the um, other hands to continue the adventure until one night they all are getting drunk. Um, Cookie has broken his legs. And the other two, uh, TR and what was the other guy's name? TR and Jeff find the liquor and get drunk themselves. And an altercation ensues. They have to confront him. And they end up ditching the expedition and leave just these paid tourists to drive the cattle and they're split as to what they're going to do um and it ends up just being our our three protagonists um not at first though because originally well uh, phil originally ditches them and it's just going to be um phil and ed are just going to be the ones that are driving the cattle and And mitch was going to go with uh, helen slater and the, the ice cream twins but he comes back and joins them and they the three three amigos are driving the cattle um, and there's more further adventures as they're driving the cattle the rest of the way. But eventually, they succeed in driving the cattle back to the ranch in Colorado. Uh, you know, And they're offered a refund when uh, the Jessup son, uh, one of the dentists, suggests that they, uh, instead of getting a refund, that they just get the chance to come back and drive the cattle again. And that's when the ranch owner informs them that he's selling all the cattle because cattle prices are just too high right now. Um, beef prices are too good. Uh, and so uh, at one point, Mitch has delivered a calf on the journey, and the mother's been killed. So apparently, Mitch, uh, you know, adopts the calf, and he brings name, it, name a Norman. Yep, and brings Norman back to New York and takes him home with his family and in a minivan. Yep, and uh, and sets up unintentionally the sequel, yeah. which uh, we will get to. Yep, but Ed finds his his moment and what makes him happy, and Phil uh, makes a connection with. Uh, Bonnie, and uh, at the end of the film, we see Bonnie getting into a taxi with Phil to go home with him, and there's a connection there. Um, but you know, so the movie, of course, uh, achieves its little catharsis, its wonderful little arc. Yeah, it resolves itself. Mm-hmm. The movie does a nice job resolving itself, and it's it's just a wonderful film. It's happy. It's got a good feeling throughout it. It's got just enough plot to keep you on the line, mm-hmm. 
and enough plot to make everything plausible. There, the the pacing's really excellent. There's yeah. there's not really a, a boring part of this movie. Yeah, it it keeps a very consistent pace, and it's also not at all in a hurry. Yeah, uh, which allows it to work in uh, some of the best parts of the movie, which are these conversations, uh, which they have uh, on the trail. Uh, they have a conversation with the ice cream people about uh, oh, one of them yeah. claims that they can always determine the perfect ice cream to go with any meal. Yeah. Uh, to which uh, Mitch says, well, how how do you know you're right? So we have 1,400 uh, outlets. Yeah. That's how we know we're right. Yeah. Uh, then they have a conversation, a theoretical conversation. If a, if a beautiful woman came down And your wife was never going to find out and you could enjoy sexy times with her uh, would you do it uh, and they have various answers to that depending on the character and then the best day worst day well but what, before we leave mm-hmm. that the best part is when Mitch proposes that question to Curly and Curly's response is well is she a redhead mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah and then best day worst day that was interesting too best day worst day is, is it was great. entertaining but then it ends on Some a point relatively serious yeah. yeah poignant note and yeah these these little digressions. I mean, this is a great vehicle for those kind of things because this is a story that's not in a hurry. It, it's these things naturally fit. I mean, you're you're on a horse for yeah. twelve hours a day with your friends. You're gonna have conversations. There's, you're gonna have to find some kind of verbal fodder uh, to engage in. And then that three leads are just great together. They work really well together. Um, I found a thing uh, actually. So. Daniel Stern's character actually was originally cast. Uh, they originally cast Rick Moranis, but Rick Moranis had to back out because his wife had cancer or something like that. His wife fell ill, so Rick Moranis had to back out, and Daniel Stern was cast in that part. It's hard to not think of Daniel Stern. It's a great part for Daniel Stern, who hasn't had a ton of great parts. Yeah. And in a way, off the top of my head, it's the one of the most rounded parts. Oh yeah, uh, that I've ever seen for for Daniel. Well, it would be it would be hard to imagine Rick Moranis actually in this role. Yeah, um, but it would have been too uh, too heavy, for possibly. lack of a better term. It's like like too much of a persona. Rick Moranis is that he too would, he, he would he would detract from Billy Crystal as the center of attention. Yeah, yeah. Which Daniel Stern does not do. Daniel Stern and Bruno Kirby both complement Billy Crystal very well. And you were mentioning earlier how uh, Bruno Kirby has a, a working relationship. Yeah, I mean, they appear in several films together. I mean, off the top of my head, When Harry Met Sally is another one that they appear in. Um, I think if I go and look, there's probably others, but um, I don't recall them all of them off the top of my head. Of course, I think he's in City Slickers, too. Um, I would but, think so. But yeah, it's, they appeared in a number of films together. It, it didn't occur to me until this film started, and then I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, Billy Crystal, he's, he actually helped write this, this film, though he's not credited as a writer in the credits for this. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, there's a, some interesting tidbits about this. I mean, Billy Crystal really just enjoyed filming this film. And so he talks a lot about it, but, um, they all were given lots of horse training because they, they clearly film a lot of this film on horses. Um, but Billy Crystal enjoyed his horse so much that he actually adopted the, or, uh, bought the horse and, uh, and owned it until its natural death. Um, in the filming of this film, they also used six calves to play Norman. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, Billy Crystal actually birthed a calf for the film. So the part where he's the, the, the calf comes out and falls on him, that actually happened. 
Um, but Billy Crystal uh, adopted all six of the calves and, and paid for them to live out the rest of their life on a, on a ranch in Colorado. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of little tidbits. Oh, another one was uh, in the opening of the film, Billy Crystal's, um, well, Mitch's mother calls to tell, you know, and, and rehearses Mitch's birth story. And this becomes apparent that this is something that happens every year. Apparently, that's actually something that Billy Crystal's mother does. She calls him every year on his birthday and reenacts a rendition of, of his birth story. And the birth story used in this film is Billy, is the story of when Billy Crystal was born. Um, and also when they're out on the trail, Billy Crystal, and this leads to kind of another little interesting piece of trivia, but Billy Crystal, uh, when they're doing best day, worst day, he talks about his best day was um, going to Yankee Stadium with his, with his dad which is a true story. And when he says that he ha still has the program to, the, to this day, Billy Crystal actually has the program from the first day that he ever went to Yankee Stadium with his father. And he talks about seeing Mickey Mantle. Um, he actually got him to um, autograph the program the day that they went to the stadium. And then 20 years later, they were appearing on a TV program together. And he got him to autograph the program a second time. And Billy Crystal still has that program to this day. Cool. Um, so he interjects things from his own life. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it, it feels personal. Yeah. There, there's, there's definitely... You, you really feel like you get a sense of the real Billy Crystal in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's so wonderful in the deadpan stuff. And just some of the asides. I mean, he's it, very natural here. And, and which he... Is he ever false? No. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know so. that he can really do that. Um, and according to Billy Crystal, Charles Bronson was originally offered the role of um, Curly, mm -hmm. but turned it down. But that's re Billy Crystal revealed that in his autobiography know. that was released in 2013. Oh, Billy Crystal, uh, most people that are familiar with Billy Crystal, he's a notorious New York Yankees fan. So it's kind of intriguing that he was wearing a New York Mets hat in this film. Mm -hmm. And the reason that he wore a New York Cats film, if you actually watch the DVD commentary... He says he did this because the New York Mets had made a major contribution and helped out his annual comic relief charity. And so because of that, he wore a Mets hat in this film. Indeed. Or at least for a good chunk of, good the, chunk film. of the film. Yeah. So that's, that's what led the Yankees fan to wear the Mets hat. So, Yeah, and Daniel Stern, so they, I mentioned they all were offered riding lessons and had some horse experience going into this. Daniel Stern, because his character is supposed to be so inept on the horse, declined any of the writing lessons and showed up for filming and that was the first time he'd rode a horse wow so yeah lots of interesting little tidbits about the filming of this film uh it sounds like the filming this film was as fun as as watching this film so you said that it takes up uh, an inordinate amount of space in the uh the memoir yeah yeah it takes up a good chunk uh between city slickers one and city slickers two it takes up a good chunk of his mem of his autobiography mm. yeah it's pretty good, though. And what other thoughts do you have before we move into budget and, and kind of some ratings? Um, no, I think I pretty much captured it. So do you know much about its budget or how much money this no. film made? Uh, I know it was a success. Yeah. A big success. Estimated budget of $27 million. Its domestic opening weekend was brought in $13 million, but its domestic gross was $124 million. That's good for early 90s. Yeah, so it grossed nearly $100 million. Uh, worldwide gross, not quite as much as you might have thought, but for an early 90s film, not bad. It's worldwide gross uh, was just over $179 million. So yeah, film mm -hmm. made like $150 million. 
Yeah. You know, that's that's quite the success. Understandable why it would uh, lead to a, a sequel. Even though it's very much a film not built for a sequel. Not a, not originally, but yeah. Have we talked much about the sequel? Like, No, the plan is to get into that a little later in the month. Yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to bookend the month and, and mm-hmm. watch City Slickers too, Which I've never seen. Okay, so then, it, yeah, I've forgotten that. You did mention that. Um, I'm interested to see what what you're going to make of City Slickers 2, because I think City Slickers 2, for a sequel, was actually pretty well done. I come in suspicious. Understandably. That's reasonable. So, what would you uh, rate this film, and what would you expect this film to be rated? In terms of uh, like online a, reviews? IMDb or IMDb. Rotten Tomatoes. Well, this film is a perfect example of what I sometimes call the four-star, three-star film. Mm-hmm. Meaning, it's a good film. It's 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 the popcorn type of movie, uh, enjoyable, low impact. It's not asking a ton of you. Just executed about as well as you can imagine it being executed, but of a caliber, a storyline, of a scope that just does not warrant a four star. Yeah. So I would have to give it. A, I'd have to bridge the difference and probably give it three and a half stars on the four-star scale, but on the IMDb scale, I want to give it 9 out of 10. Oh, yeah? I think it's pretty close to hit, hits it out of the park. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you on the four-star scale. I'd say this is a very solid three-star film, if not three and a half. On the uh, 10-star scale, I was I was going to give it eight stars. But, yeah. Uh, surprisingly, its rating on IMDb is only 6.7 stars. That's sad. Yeah. I thought it would have... Uh, had just a little bit better rating. This is a film that most younger people are probably simply not familiar with. You know, there's a scene, we and we've talked about this as it was playing live, but there's a scene in which apparently they have a four-hour conversation about how to program a VCR. Uh-huh. And and Nate and I were sitting here laughing, at, and, just, and we commented on how the current generation... That entire portion of that is just going to be you gotta way set over it, everybody's you got to set it to channel three. It's going to make no sense to younger people, many of whom anymore find DVDs an antiquated novelty. Yeah, yep. And then when they start talking about how to set the clock on, on the VCR, yeah. Yeah. Yep. That was, a, that was quite a, it was a good line for the time. Probably the only part of this movie that doesn't age well. Mm-hmm. Everything else in this film really ages quite well. Yeah, it has a timeless quality to it. Yeah. So. And and we haven't talked, and I should just briefly mention how wonderful the score is. Oh yeah, it's got it's yeah. got this uh, the theme, uh, which is very much homaging uh, old school westerns, is just wonderful. Yeah, uh, there's some supporting music, none of which really stands out, but the theme itself is great. I was trying to look up the soundtrack. It kind of blends a few things. Um, it's got a heart, Birdland. Yeah, it's got a um, tumbling, Ranch, tumbleweeds, tumbling tumbleweeds, rawhide, bonanza, mm-hmm. and where did my heart go? Uh, which was actually com- composed for this film. Mark Scheinman is the the guy that does the score for this film, uh, and he did quite well for it. So, well, I think we've spoken to the extent that we have to speak right now on the original City Slickers, but we will return to. Billy these Crystal characters uh, in the coming weeks and to Billy Crystal momentarily. Yep.